everyone. Welcome to Surplus Value, a new episode. Uh, a little late, I'm sorry about that. Uh, it has been the first week of school for my kids, and it's been a little bit confusing and complicated. First week of teaching for me, too. I'm sure it's the first week of everything for a lot of you. Um, it's kind of a weird time, but hopefully everyone's having a really easy time of it, or a relatively easy time of it. Uh, hopefully everyone's staying healthy, uh, etc., etc. Um, I wanted to take a break, and this actually isn't because of the uh, weird week, uh, but I wanted to take a break this week because I had an idea. Um, I want to take a break from the marks and pivot to something that, um, it's a saying, and it's a saying that kind of reveals a number of things about, uh, I don't know, like a, I would say like a leftist orthodoxy uh, that can be positive and also kind of like restrictive. Um and, and ways that we can think about it in just in terms of uh, political action and political belief um, that might be helpful. Uh, just some thoughts. And, you know, obviously, as my grandmother says, look at the ears and consider the source. Um, it's not like I am uh, some sort of guru or anything like that. You don't have to take me as gospel. Uh, but I thought it might be interesting anyway. So the phrase I'm thinking about today is... Um, this phrase called pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I mentioned this on Twitter and a bunch of people said it sounded interesting. So uh, I felt, um, you know, duly empowered to do this. Um, but pessimism of the, the intellect, optimism of the will is something from um, Antonio Gramsci's, uh, and that's G-R-A-M-S-C-I, uh, his um, notebooks. Uh, now, Gramsci wrote his notebooks uh, while under um, arrest and imprisoned by uh, Nazis, fascists, um, in the 1930s in Italy. Um, Gramsci was a, uh, a prolific and fascinating thinker who uh, just, he's very aberrant as an early uh, communist thinker because of the where he was held, I mean, where he wrote, where he sort of composed. Um, well, there are people like Lenin and... Um, later on Stalin, et cetera, who are writing within sort of like positions of government or people like Lukács who um, initially write not within government, but then sort of like build upon their work and, and end up in the USSR or people in the, in the Americas, uh, people in England who are sort of writing as a, a school of cultural criticism like Raymond Williams. Um, uh, you know, the um, Antonio Gramsci stuff is so specific. It, it feels fragmented it feels sort of uh lost in time it the only one i can really super uniquely or usefully compare it to would be walter benjamin um and maybe for similar reasons i mean benjamin was kind of um under siege in his own country uh during the rise of of hitler um and gramsci is of course imprisoned uh for being a uh, a communist um I believe that's the actual term he was imprisoned by. I, you know, you'll have to forgive me if I'm messing up the history a little bit, but please email me if I am. Um, I'm going to pull from an abstract for uh, from a woman named uh, Francesca Antonini, uh, and uh, the scholar wrote a piece called Pessim of the, "Pessimism of the Intellect, Optimism of the Will: Gramsci's Political Thought in the Last Miscellaneous Notebooks." Uh, this is from Rethinking Marxism, Volume 31, which came out in 2019. So uh, in the abstract, she tells us, uh, Gramsci combines a, quote, pessimistic analysis of the growing authoritarian trends of the 1930s with a, quote, optimistic commitment to the potential for socialist transformation and the elaboration of an effective strategy for the workers' movement. 
goes on to say, by discussing key texts from his miscellaneous notebooks, this essay investigates the way in which, in the last phase of his work in prison, Gramsci interpreted the changing political and social dynamics that characterized Western countries of his time. And in particular, the essay focuses on the concept, complex conceptual cluster elaborated by Gramsci as he explored the transformations of the mechanism of political participation, identified the new totalitarian forms of political engagement of his times, and thought about possible solutions. So a bit of a translation there. Uh, the main thing you want to think about within this abstract, and I think the super useful thing that uh, Antonini does, is that she points out this method for understanding the phrase, right? Pessimism, the intellect, optimism of the will, which is to say that the pessimism comes in when you look around yourself and you can say, okay, intellectually, I look around myself in the 1930s, or intellectually, I look around myself in the 2020s, and I see uh, rising far-rightist um, uh, governmental groups I see, uh, you know, riots and violence in the streets, um, you know, both in terms of uh, necessary and needful causes like Black Lives Matter and, and of course, like uh, black liberation and, and uh, decolonization and all, all, the, all the stuff we like the, uh, the uh, protests and uh, demonstrations in the street for, but also from far right militia groups. Um, you know, I see extremely funded police armies effectively. Like there are things that are negative, right? We can see things that are negative. And intellectually speaking, uh, Gramsci would tell us, it's important that we acknowledge these things, right? It's important that we look around and say, yeah, okay, I can see things are bad. It doesn't help if you kind of just say things are good. You know, this is this is something that actually a lot of um, communists or, or leftists or Soviet uh, sympathizers, however you want to imagine uh, them self-identifying in the United States in the 70s, they kind of failed at. Um, not being able to sort of take the world as it is, but instead imagining the USSR as a kind of um, utopia, as opposed to the complex political landscape that it was. Um, you know, the Gramscian ideal, and which is very good, actually, you know, imagines that you look at the world as it is. And it doesn't matter if it's the stuff you like or the stuff you don't like. You find the stuff that works and you find the stuff that don't, that doesn't, excuse me. So pessimism in this case might also just be realism, right? As my father used to say, just to quote my, uh, my, my grandmother and my father so I can quote all my family in one episode, um, my father used to say he wasn't a pessimist, he was a realist. Um, you know, whether or not that's true, uh, realism in this sense sort of maybe fits in a little more than pessimism. And of course, uh, Gramsci's translated from the Italian, so maybe realism was a better translation to begin with. Who knows? I don't speak Italian. But... The, the idea of realism of the intellect, right? Like looking around yourself and saying, okay, from a materialist perspective, what do I see around me? What's real? What's happening? That can be really, really important. Like that's a, that's a way of understanding the world that is absolutely necessary and also very difficult, right? It can make us feel very bad to look at the way things are. We call it, you know, doom scrolling now. We look through the, our Twitter feeds or our Facebook feeds or whatever and kind of find things that are bad. Um, find things that are happening that uh, make us sad or make us scared or make us, you know, fear for the future or believe that there is no future, right? All sorts of things, po politically, ecologically, uh, you know, socially, whatever. And uh, this can lead us into this sort of like pit, right? So while pessimism often describes how we feel, it can be important to note that, and it is important to note that you have to be this way about the stuff you like as well, right? Like you can also be realistic about the good things, but you should be realistic about them. Ac acknowledge their limits, acknowledge their problems, acknowledge the ways they could improve. Because, and here comes the second part, the optimism of the will 
is this commitment. And then I'm going to read Antonini again, commitment to the potential for transformation and the elaboration of an effective strategy. And so the optimism of the will part is basically saying like, yeah, I know things are bad. Um, and, you know, maybe they even seem hopeless, but here's my belief that we can actually do this. It doesn't hurt to have to, to say, like, I believe there's a way forward and I believe this would be the way we'd do it, right? Um, that can be seen as naive. It can be seen as cringe. It can be seen as, uh, I mean, even saying cringe is cringe. I'm sorry. Uh, it could be seen as, you know, um, uh, hopelessly romantic, useless, whatever, right? Um, and sure, uh, it's not particularly helpful in the middle of a bad situation to just up and say, um, you know, socialism will win or something like that, right? It can be reaffirming, but it might not be helpful. Now, the benefit of something like Gramsci's formulation here is that it imagines both things at once. So, like, it's not just, right, that things are bad, and it's not just that we have a sort of faith or a belief in our own ability to make things better. It is, in fact, both of them at the same time. Now, I want to suggest that this idea of holding two things in your hand at the same time is actually crucially important to understanding uh, most everything I talk about in this podcast, like everything that Marx talks about in Capital, but also sort of like understanding a coherent uh, leftist ideology in 2020, um, and perhaps at any point, but certainly right now. Uh, because the idea of holding two things in your hand at once, and, and in fact, two very much contradictory things like pessimism and optimism or intellect and will um you know the pessimism and the optimism part are the famous parts of the saying but i think the intellect and will part are really interesting too because if you imagine a sort of like let's say a far right or even a center right position typically holds one thing in its mind at all times which is that it, what it is doing is just and right um logical ethical reasonable, uh, uh, you know, the the only possible way forward. Um, they make difficult decisions. They make decisions that are easy. They make, you know, if you hear, if you listen to someone on the right speak about their politics, typically it ends up being something like a justification at all times. Everything is just. Um, you get the sort of uh, f full version of this if you read Donald Trump's Twitter or watch his speeches. But the idea is always that no matter how contradictory things might seem, the uh, the point of um, the point of conservative political faith is that there are no contradictions. Everything we say is very very consistent because we say it is right. So this would be the way that you could imagine um, being very very worried about um, unborn uh, embryos and uh, and wanting to uh, ban abortion, but then also turning around and saying that, uh, you know, people who are um, undocumented immigrants ought to be, um, you know, sent back home, even if they uh, sent back home, I'm already using it, sent back to the country they left, even if that would lead to their death, or um, that, you know, people uh, who, people who don't want to be shot by the police should follow what the police say or whatever, right? Like, care for one life and then not caring about another equally valuable ostensibly life or more valuable ostensibly life um, is balanced out by this idea of, well, this is all, this is all meted out by a sense of order, right? Um, sure. Yeah. I, I said that person 
you know, deserve to die, but it's because they disobeyed a certain kind of order. And these babies didn't, but these people did. But it's a shifting scale, right? The field goals, <laughs> the field goals always change. Or the, the excuse me, the goalposts always change, right? Um, at any given point, no matter what sort of long shot you give a conservative, they will move the goalpost so it's not an eighty-yard field goal; it's a twelve-yard field goal, right? So, the point here is to say, a conservative view tends to be one that deals with a kind of dishonest but um, very much consistent personal view that you the conservative thinker, are an individual in the right of history. Right? You, you, you know things, you have considered things, you have come to conclusions on things, and most of the time, this devolves upon two things, which are faith, um, and either that, that can be any kind of faith. That can be faith in the system, faith in uh, your system, faith in the individual, faith in um, God, whatever you want, right? Um, but also reason, right? This idea, this sort of Ben Shapiroian uh, concept of following through on a sort of reasonableness uh, logic that uh, comes to the central conclusion every time and is a kind of consistency, right? Uh, this would be optimism of the intellect, right? <laughs> um, and optimism of the will. The the sort of like far-right position seems to be something like, we've thought this through, we've come to the reasonable considerations, you're using your emotions, you're not thinking straight. Uh, and then the, the sort of obfuscation happens and it's like, see, Every single thing we suggested, uh, that was the right way to go. You know, we, we think about people saying that the last six months of COVID um, uh, care and social distancing and mask wearing and stuff like that was, you see this online all the time, that it was propaganda put out by the government to try and control us. Well, of course, you point out people still died. Oh, well, you know, far fewer than die of, uh, or well, not anymore, but for a while, far fewer than die of the flu every year. Well, then you point out, well, you know, they, they, that's because we use precautions. Well, they would have done that without the precautions too. In fact, the precautions don't work. I found this one article. And if you think about it reasonably, what, what, blah, 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 you pile it on and eventually you either get exhausted or you leave and they chalk it up as a win, right? Um, for a sort of like liberal position, if you're thinking about the two ends of the American political compass, because um, if you're thinking about like the far, far right, like a sort of fascistic right, um, the kind of purity and morality of nationalist, racialist um, supremacy is exactly the sort of thing that gives you an optimism of the intellect and an optimism of the will, right? Where you imagine that your position as a white person or your position as an American or a German or whatever, right, is the central thing that uh, ratifies your will that you're good to go. So really, that's just an extension of the kind of like, oh, I've, I'm, I've always been right. Even when I've said I was wrong, even when I contradicted myself, I made a lot of sense. Um, an extension of that version in the American conservative sense. Um, the American liberal sense takes this in a different way. And so you see a lot of people online, like say like the Pod Save America people or other sort of like classical liberals doing the thing where the main end to political conversation is consistency, right? Uh, and, and consistency being a kind of like, like um, think about it like a mathematic proof, right? Everything equals out in the end. Um, and get the sense of uh, I, I've never contradicted myself, and in fact, I can point out when others have contradicted themselves. President Trump contradicted himself here, and shouldn't shouldn't his supporters care? And of course, as we've discussed, they don't because it's very easy to move the goalposts. That's that's what you do. You move the goalposts, so you're always right. Liberals, on the other hand, will move no goalposts, and there's something 
you know, honorable about this, taking your position and, and following it through to its consistency. Um, so you say something like, well, um, I, I, I don't like Donald Trump. He is a, he's a far right leader. Okay. Uh, turns out you said that about George W. Bush and now George W. Bush said he doesn't like Trump. Well, okay. I guess what that must mean is that I like Trump less than I like George W. Bush. And in fact, I have heard, and it seems consistent, that the enemy, of me, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, so now George W. Bush is my friend. Or, um, you know, we we need a certain amount of mo- votes to win the presidency. We should get those votes. Well, some of those votes are Republicans. Um, well, okay, we need those votes too. Well, we're going to have to give up some things. Well, I've heard once that compromise is the best way to get to a solution, so we need to compromise some things, right? Every time you can kind of like, you can sort of see at the core of any sort of disappointing concession or um, unfulfilling end to a, a sort of like American liberal argument that there's this concession to fairness and consistency and containment, right? Anytime there's a contradiction, it's not on the people making the political points to move the goalposts as it would be in the American right, but it is in fact upon you, it devolves upon the, the political believer, that you need to self-inspect your positions and then shift them so that you have been consistent. Uh, change something and give up something, compromise something so that you can continue on in a uh, political sense, right? Politics for the American uh, liberal is all about compromise and personal um, uh, 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 submissions to, to extreme, but personal sort of subjugation or subjection to the... Um, to the, the political machine, right? Like, or the political machine of logic. It's not, I'm not saying like, you know, it's, it's boss Taft or anything like that. Um, I'm saying like the idea is always about being able to compromise and shift so that you can be part of the political discourse. Um, and much as the um, sort of American right is a kind of strange pale reflection of a kind of fascistic right logic, right? Like I'm always right because I keep moving the goalposts versus I'm always right because my race or my nationality gives me the right um, or, you know, my my lineage, uh, my kingly lineage gives me the right. Right. Those are kind of reflections of each other. Um, The American liberal position is very similarly sort of a diluted version of what I will argue is a leftist position that finds its real definition in Gramsci, you know, because Gramsci says it's the pessimism of the intellect, optimism, the will. You hold two things in your hand at once. And much like the American liberal has a way of sort of like looking at two things at the same time and then saying, well, okay, I have to give up something so that I can stay the way I was. I believe that uh, a leftist in 2020 has to hold two contradictory things in their hands and then look at them and say, okay, these two contradictory things exist in front of me at all times. I contradict. And the only way to fix that contradiction is not by giving things up or insisting that actually I've been correct the whole time, but in fact to work in a dialectical, and I'll talk about that word because people have, uh, it has gone out of fashion, it seems, uh, just within the past few months uh, by people who want to make Marxism a little more accessible or what they imagine is accessible in a way that I think is entirely wrongheaded. Um, And uh, let it be said, uh, elitist and and condescending. Um, But more on that in a second. You have to hold both of these contradictory things in your hands and say, you know, a sort of version of the world that acknowledged the reality of these two things, but made things better. 
That's what we have to work for. I have to be pessimistic enough to recognize my own contradictions, but I must also be optimistic enough to imagine a world where things, where both of those things are either resolved or acknowledged or ideally some version of both. We don't pretend they don't exist and we don't reject them entirely as reality. We take stock of our of our failures and of our successes and imagine a world where you know instead of ignoring those or rejecting those as false knowledge we move forward with both hi folks have you ever had the nagging suspicion that your hairline is retreating on you ever get curious about why it suddenly feels so breezy up there well father time comes for us all and when you think he might be coming for your hair get him out of there with keeps Yes, friends, Keeps, a revolutionary new treatment for male pattern baldness and hair loss that, when used at the first signs of balding, allows you to keep that beautiful head of hair full and firm. Best of all, you can use Keeps from the comfort of your own home. Simply visit one of their doctors online and have a prescription mailed to the convenience of your own home. Every three months you'll get more, and if you're worried about the price, don't. Keeps uses a generic version of hair loss medicines and passes the savings on to you. A new price for a new you starting at $10 a month. But don't forget to act soon because the key to Keeps is prevention, not regrowth. Save that head of hair, friend, before it goes away and save it today with a special offer code by going to www.keeps.com slash That's www.keeps.com. K-E-E-P-S dot C-O-M slash H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. Go there and receive your first month free and tell them Hegelbond sent you. Um, so, I mean, let me talk about dialecticism for a second. Dialectics is simply, and so a lot of people online are, are taking stuff like this, like materialism or dialectics or any of the words and marks that um, have given people trouble in the past and saying instead of giving them uh, contemporary definitions as... I hate to do this, but as I would do um, in my podcast here, uh, instead of doing that, they take the um, they take the word and imagine it as some sort of like archa- um, archaicism, right? Um, some some sort of like um, anachronistic problem that the left has because we we just hold on to these words, and it would be so much easier to get like a foreman at a factory to believe in Marx if we didn't tell him it was dialectic. So two things there: one. The foreman at the factory is not being held up by dialectics, right? Because, two, you don't enter into talking to someone about, like, hey, don't you think you don't get enough for, for your labor? Don't you think it's, like, weird that the boss gets more money than you do? No one enters into that by saying, like, hey, you ever think about the dialectics of uh, of uh, labor and management? You ever you ever wonder about the master-slave uh, problem uh, via Hegel? Like, that's ridiculous. It is a useful way of describing the world. It's not how you lead the question. And that's why there's the communist manifesto and capital. There's the easy way in, the political way in, and then there's the descriptive philosophical way. But regardless, even without thinking about this as some sort of like, you know, how do we get the revolution or whatever, um, think about it in terms of this way. Dialectics imagines a world where contradictions exist. And Instead of being a problem that contradictions exist, it takes it as the basis of the world. The idea in dialect thought from Plato to Marx and beyond is that two things exist opposed to one another as a natural state. And their synthesis, which is oftentimes keeps both and sort of imagines a new thing, is the way that we get 
new contradictions. So it's always the production, production of contradictions. Contradictions in this sense are not endpoints, but beginning points. And so this is important. So you can imagine a, a kind of like personal contradiction, right? So I'm an American uh, heterosexual uh, cissexual male, right? Okay. In many ways, I'm not the kind of person that we should be building movements around, obviously. Um, I, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things I can say about myself that way. Um, probably, on some level, um, my involvement in these movements would, is, is a net negative, right? Because it magnifies a certain voice, it presents a certain kind of perspective as central, um, and perhaps um, someone who has a more sort of like, uh, well, I mean, a, a different perspective that hasn't, is, hasn't been heard as much uh, could be doing this all true. Here's the other thing that I hold in my hand. I want to be able to talk because I think I'm smart and I think I'm good at it and I like to be successful in what I do. Um, I love to podcast and I love when people listen to it, right? Acknowledging that doesn't make me worse, right? In fact, acknowledging it kind of makes me a little more honest. There's a way to self-flagellate and say like, oh, it would be better if I were just uh, dead. And sure, that might make you feel better because you're sort of like saying how sorry you are to your, to your colleagues or your comrades. But on the other hand, it doesn't make their lives any better. It just opens up this problem where all of a sudden, if they don't say that you're dirt, you, <laughs> they, they aren't helping you get through your, your, your guilt, right? Much better to acknowledge the fact that you are sort of occupying a very fraught position vis-a-vis -vis a left project, um, AKA the position of dominance, a social dominance in a, in a kind of like society you don't like, um, you know, in a racist, sexist society, I'd make out and there's no way around that. Like I have to acknowledge that, but in acknowledging it, I cannot and should not say that, you know, oh, so I only want failure for myself. That's disingenuous and it's insulting. And it makes it so that anyone who wants to be a good colleague or comrade to you who is, um, you know, of a different sexuality, of um, a different gender, of a different um, race, like of a different ethnicity, like it makes it so that they have to then agree with you and say like, yes, I think it would be better if you didn't exist. It's a horrible thing to put on someone. We know that we shouldn't put that on people. You shouldn't put that on people just because you're, you know, abled in a particular way or, or, or um, you're white or whatever. Like this is not other people's problems to deal. You have to take the contradiction in your own hands and look at it and say, okay, what's the synthesis of this? And the synthesis ultimately ends up being like, okay, I still want to succeed, but I recognize that I'm succeeding at an easy, in an easier way or in a way that is unfairly tilted towards me. The system is tilted towards my success, but I still love succeeding. Okay. So I want to succeed, but I don't want to succeed, right? I want to change the world so that I don't succeed every time, but I want to keep succeeding. So you look at that and you say, okay, what this reveals to me is that the one uh, element, the fact that the system is tilted towards me is something that the system created, right? It's something external to myself. It is, it is political. It is um, historical, all that stuff. The idea that I want to succeed, that's not so historical. That's just kind of like an internal thing. I'd love to just like succeed. Everyone wants to, you know, make enough so that we can get on and feed our families and live, live where we want to live and be healthy and have health care, et cetera, right? Like none of that is particularly historically based. 
Um, you know, the conditions of it certainly are, but the idea of wanting enough for yourself and your loved ones is not at all historical. It's just simply like uh, inborn. Um, and if it's historical, it's historical in a sense that I cannot track based on politics. So what we have here is sort of like the social versus the personal in a kind of way. That's another dialectic we can think about. And the resolution of this idea of holding these two things in our hands is looking forward and saying like, oh, you know, a resolution to this problem that I am observing and I am pessimistic in my intellect enough, realistic in my intellect enough to realize that I exist within this problem of socially, I am not helping anyone by succeeding, but boy, do I want to succeed. You look ahead and you say like, oh, actually what this points out is that the personal and the social do not actually have that different um, of a positive outcome. Like if I really want to succeed, then I should want everyone to want to succeed because the human impulse to want to succeed is this idea of, you know, uh, the, the idea that that is human is an idea that you um, don't want to succeed because you're a bad person. You want to succeed and you want to be able to provide and you want to be able to to have enough because you're just a person. And that's like a thing that people want. So we should aspire, the, th the synthesis would say, looking forward in our optimistic sense, to a society that would give people enough regardless of who they were, right? So not a society where I'm thrown in a pit and I get to self-flagellate, right? But a society where I still get enough, but you get enough too, right? And so that's the thing. Like as a leftist, it's very difficult to hold two things in our hands and not feel bad, Right. And, and, and this isn't to say you won't ever feel bad or guilty or make mistakes or do bad things. Right. That's this is philosophy. It's not it's not it's not uh, not foolproof. It doesn't help you live. Basically, it helps you think. But it is important to be able to look at the things in front of you and recognize your position, recognize your privilege as the parlance would go. Um, but I think it's fair. Um, recognize your privilege. But then in recognizing it, understand that recognizing it and saying, wow, I'm so sorry, like I never thought about this before, is not really doing anything except putting the onus on the other person to then say like, okay, well, you are now a good white or something like that, right? The idea is keeping that in mind and saying like, okay, this is my privilege in society, like I get these benefits because of who I am, Um and, what, and then holding in the other hand and saying like, and what selfishly do I like about that? What do, I, what do I get out of it that is good? And then holding those two things and looking at the bad and looking at the good and saying like, okay, how does this inform the ideal imaginary uh, of a leftist project? That seems so impossible until you think about it as optimism of the, I'm sorry, <laughs> pessimism of the intellect. I see the things in front of me and they make me scared or sad or upset or hopeless or frustrated. And then optimism of the will. But I am sure that if I think about this enough and try and, and work and, and plan with my friends and people who have similar politics and, you know, just like, work, do things, uh, make connections, make friends, uh, talk to your coworkers, whatever, right? Like just like understand and, and, and take people as they are. Like if you try and become better, the optimism of the will says like, we can have a better society, even with these really, really troubling contradictions about ourselves. And that's better in my mind than ignoring the contradictions, 
blinding myself to them and saying like, well, you know, I really like succeeding and it's because I'm very, very hardworking and uh, maybe, maybe everyone should be more as hardworking as me. Stop, stop uh, using, stop playing the race card as I would if I were an American conservative or if I were an American liberal, I would say everyone likes success. Um, so I will admit that my success is not fair, but I don't want to give it up because I did earn it, but maybe we can give you a tax credit so that you can have a little a bit of a leg up next time too. No, instead you hold both of them and you say like, these are true. How do we make it so that these two truths aren't denied, but in fact used to produce a better world? Anyway, just a thought this time around. I'll be back to the marks next time. I know that's mainly why people come here, but I thought it might be interesting. Um, let me know how you, what you thought of this. Uh, if you'd like to have more sort of like discussions of uh, maxims, I'm happy to talk about materialism too. That's a fun one. Um, and uh, yeah, tell people about the show. I would love to have more people listening. Um, also, if you have any sort of like group that you'd like to hear this, then you don't want to like um, you know, your DSA chapter or your reading group or whatever. Um, let me know. I'm super open to letting a group of people listen, um, even if like, you know, only one or none of them are paying. That's fine. Um, so yeah, thanks everyone. And I will talk to you next week.